We're going to enjoy the Word of God today, all right? It's going to be a great moment. As a church family, as you know, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, right? And so today, today I'm going to bring my contribution to this series, and mine's going to be a view from maybe 40,000 feet. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's ultimate plan, and we're going to look at ultimate intentions that is found in that great book of the church called Ephesians. Ephesians is broken up, as you know, into six chapters. The first three have to do with, with doctrine, um, orthodoxy. And the last three have to do with practice or orthopraxy, how you work it out. Today, I'm going to hang out in the first three, which for me, is, these are, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And today, we're going to have heaven's perspective, heaven's vantage point on the eternal purposes of Christ. We're going to look at God's divine intentions as it's meant, I believe, to inspire our lives in a manner that facilitates our righteousness and holiness. As we look at God's ultimate intentions, it should mm, cause us to cooperate with Him and to be the kind of people that He would have us to be to help fulfill and to facilitate what God is doing in the earth today. We're going to look at some profound statements from God's grand and glorious plan given by the Apostle Paul in these three chapters. This morning, I hope it excites you a little bit. I hope for some reason it just begins to cause a, a joy to rise up in your heart. And maybe for some of you, even under the mask, you can give a little <clears throat> amen, a little a little nod, a little agreement, a little sense of yes. And feel free, you won't hurt my feelings if you explode into praise and say, glory to God for that truth, for that revelation. And I believe that God would be pleased with his people to express a little emotion, express some gratitude, agreement, a sense of saying, so be it, Lord. So I pray that it has that intention or that, or that uh, effect upon you this morning. Now, I want you to know, and you need to understand, and many of you already do, that your Bible didn't always have chapters and verses in it, right? That came much later by the Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy by the name of Stephen Langton. In the year 1227, he put together the chapters in our Bible. And then about 50, in the year 1500, verses were added to it. And these chapters and verses were added to the Scripture to help students of the Bible, like you and me, to find statements and to memorize and quote Scripture. It helps us to find these glorious accounts more readily. And so I give God thanks for the chapters and verses that were added to the Bible. So if you will, this morning, turn in your Bible to Ephesians 2 for such an example. I want you this morning, and I'll have it up on the screen as well, I want you to notice how it begins. It starts with the word and. That's kind of a wild way to start a chapter in a sentence, and. This tells us that chapter 2 is a continuation of thought from chapter 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, want, you once walked. So, 
we know already that the apostle is referring back to something that he has already said, something in which he's going to continue in that thought process. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter 1 and see the central theme of the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at the central theme of this epistle. We're going to look at the ultimate issue that the Apostle Paul was anxious for the church of Ephesus and all who would read this divine letter to, to see. So he makes this profound statement, and I believe then the rest of the letter shows how it's unfolded. So at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, we have Paul celebrating God's divine election. We have a celebration of Paul and all of the believers there celebrating God's divine call and his election upon their life, a celebration of his predestination, bringing us into the adoption as children of God. And then he says this, and we'll start back in verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite, say unite, unite. to unite all things in him, that's Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. This is the main theme of the book of Ephesians. Actually, I believe we can go further and say that this is the central theme of all of Scripture. The uniting of all things, the summing up of all things and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Because Christ, of course, is the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. He is the one who is, who was, and is to come. And He is the Almighty. And so, friends, this verse takes us all the way up, early on, to heaven's vantage point. And it helps us to see what God's final purpose is with respect to His world. It's huge. I want you to know it's bigger than our salvation. It's bigger than my relationship with Jesus. This is about ultimate things. This has to do with a grand and comprehensive and final ultimate purpose to unite all things in Christ. We know that Jesus came in the fullness of time, right? Galatians 4.4. Jesus came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those and to bring us into adoption as sons of God. And so this glorious plan of the uniting of all things in Christ came and began with the birth of Jesus. And today we are living in the process of that, the restoration of all things, a plan that is now being worked out in which we not only get to see it, but we testify to it and we cooperate with us. And so even when I heard my sister's testimony this morning, I see that Christ is showing himself in you, sis. He's showing his goodness in you, that you're united to him. 
and that there is a restoration going on not only in your body, but your soul and your heart. And there's a fullness that is exploding. He's united you to him and him to you. It's a beautiful picture. The restoration of all things. God's purpose now and in the future is to bring together again, to gather together, to reunite all things, things that are broken because of sin, things that are broken because of man's rebellion. I'm telling you, it's important for us to think about this, and it should be comforting for us in this tragic time that we find ourselves in right now, right? I mean, look at the political unrest. I mean, it's unbelievable, the contingent. I mean, just, just, just the contingents. I mean, it's it, it, the vitriol. Don't you, it, it, it gets in you, doesn't it? And it, it just spoils your peace. It's a challenging time. I mean, racial conflicts and defunding the police and riots in the street and buildings burning and on and on. It's a terrible thing. The pandemic keeping families apart. I received a call early this morning from Adam Kayeba, and he told me, keep praying for Livingston, a new breakout of, of COVID there. And understand, when it's a breakout there in Livingston, it's different than here. They don't have respirators. There's no doctors on call. Rob can testify to this. He, they, he knows that they have very little by way of any health care in that, in that town. So it's a real challenging time. But this verse... That all things will be united in Christ is a verse of promise from God. It's a promise from God that children will not continue to go to bed hungry. Children will not continue to be <laughs> aborted in the womb. That floods and droughts and hurricanes, they will end. That cancer will not continue to ride roughshod over God's people and ravage families. And there will be a time in which genocides come to an end. That's a promise that all things will be united in Jesus Christ to his divine intentions. It's broken to be sure because of sin, because of man's rebellion. I mean, look at today. People are trying to redefine what the family is, to destroy the nuclear family, a family which is the gift of God given to us in creation. And yet, people are wanting to say, no, we have a better idea of how to define what a family really is. We need the restoration of all things and the power of Christ in our day like never before. But I'm here to testify that all things will be united in Jesus Christ. And that includes angels who left their first estate, God's chosen and elect children, the universe, the earth, and all of its fullness, all of creation will be united in Christ. We must understand that Jesus created all of this beautiful and good. The Bible tells us in one of my favorite pieces of Scripture of Pauline writings in Colossians, where we read in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Aren't you glad for that? 
And he is the head of the body. Look, he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, look at this, to do what? To reconcile to himself. That's the same thing that we just read in Ephesians 1.10, that he's going to unite all things in Christ. He's going to reconcile to himself all things. Where? Whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Aren't you glad for the champion that we have in Jesus? Oh, all things reconciled to himself. All things made and created by him, through him, and for him. Be it animals, the world, angels, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, all created by Jesus in perfect harmony, they will once again, they will once again be united in that perfect harmony. They will once again declare and show forth the grandeur, the wisdom, and the glory of God. All reunited. How? By the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross. All of God's children reconciled to God and to one another. This is possible because Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, a common refrain, all to the praise of his glorious grace. All to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, this is the ultimate intentions of God that all things would be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now that we have the central theme of the book of Ephesians highlighted and looked at, let's move on. You move towards chapter 2 and Paul begins to go into some detail. The apostle gives detail regarding what the great problem is. Because if you read chapter 1, you think, well, the world doesn't look like that today. You get to chapter 2, and Paul begins to explain why it doesn't look like that in fullness. He gives us details regarding the great problem that confronted the unity with Christ and the unity with one another. He defines the obstacles that are inherent in this union with Christ and that the things that separated people, that separated Jews and Gentiles. And it's found, as you know, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And it reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we <laughs> were by nature children's, children of wrath, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty dark commentary on fallen man. Before God began to act, before God came and dealt with this issue, we were in a dreadful state. I mean, it's bad. 
In order for us to know the greatness of God's power, we must understand the depths of our sin, right? You got to know the depths of how far you have fallen. You got to know how desperate you are in order to appreciate the power and the grandeur. We are not just sick. We weren't just dirty. <laughs> we weren't just drowning and needed somebody to throw us a life preserver. No, 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 no. We were far beyond that. We weren't sick. We were dead. We weren't dirty. We were by nature children of wrath. <laughs> we were not just drowning and struggling. We were dead. And the waves of God's wrath were heading for us. It's been said many, 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 many times, and you've heard it, and I'm sure you have mumbled it under your breath before or testified to it. These two glorious words in verse 4 that start off with these two words, but God. Aren't, aren't you? But God. We would all despair if it wasn't for the but God. But God. But God. Rich in mercy when we were dead in sin when we're in the grave because of his great mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when the Bible says we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And here's the key to understanding it. How did he do it? How did he make us alive together with Christ? Simply this. By grace, you have been saved. And if you didn't get it, he repeats it three verses later. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of our works or cleverness or the clothes we wear or the house we live in or the pedigree that we have. It is truly a work of grace so that no one can boast. It's a glorious work of grace, period and full stop. You and I did not contribute one thing to our salvation. Not one thing. Even the faith that was exercised to reach out to Jesus, even that faith was a gift of God's grace. Because we in ourselves do not have any faith. Because the Bible tells us that we are hostile to God. Our salvation is a covenantal operation of the Godhead, of the triune God, a covenant that God made in eternity past. And the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in sweet society, came up with this glorious plan that included you and I. The Father has elected and he's given to his Son a people countless beyond the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashell. And those he gives to Christ, and they become objects of his divine love. And the Son, the Lord Jesus, in the fullness of time, what did he do? He became. He became a man, and he lived in this broken world. And for his people, Jesus kept the law perfectly. He worked out a spotless righteousness, which has satisfied God's holy and just law. How amazing. He bore the sins of his people. The chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. He bore the holy and righteous wrath of God that we deserved, making atonement for his people. And then 
Jesus sent forth the mighty Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to apply the work of Christ to the elect. And at due time, he would quicken through the inward call, that call that quickens the heart and changes it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He convicts God's people of their sin and shows them their need of redemption. He brings them to the blood of Christ and he gives them the gift of faith so that they can confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He gives them every grace. The Holy Spirit gives them uh, every grace and he keeps our faith alive so we don't despair. Right, Victoria? Our faith is kept alive so we're not despairing. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and he will present us spotless and faultless before the throne of grace. My goodness, friends, from first to last, this is a work of our triune God. We're saved, not only saved, not only made, aled, uh, made alive together with Christ, not only pardoned and forgiven, but look at what Paul says in this divine letter. He goes up and he says, you know what? You're even raised up with him. And, and we're seated with him now in heavenly places. I told you I was going to give you the 4,000 foot view. Right now, we are seated with Christ by being in union with him. We are seated with him in heavenly places. I mean, if that doesn't ring your bell, your clacker is fully stuck. <laughs> to get a hold of that reality, it changes everything, doesn't it? And not only are we seated with him in heavenly places, which is amazing, it's because Jesus is there. Because Paul told us in the previous, cha the previous chapter, remember, forget chapters and verses, but he let us know that Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, what was happening? What did the Father do? He seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that's named, not only in this age, but the one to come. So Jesus reigning supremely. How glorious that truly, truly is. We're seated with him in heavenly places. And that means that we, too, are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be named because we're seated there with him. For too long, and I know Jeff Crooks and I have had this conversation before, for too long I believe that the church has had a big devil and a little God. And oh, how we need to keep our perspective. We must realize that our standing in Christ that we are seated with him far above, not a little above, far above rule and authority and power and, and dominion, far above every name that can be named. You know, this is not about having good self-esteem. It's about having healthy Christ-esteem that we would say, oh, oh, how I esteem the Christ, and I'm found in him, and I'm united with him. He is my elder brother, and I am seated right next to him, far above. And then Paul tells us something important. Why did he do that? Why 
did God do this activity? Why? Well, he tells us here in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you know, as we marvel here today, we marvel in part, don't we? In part. But think about the marveling we're going to do for all eternity. Think about the marveling we're going to do when we see him as he is and that we are like him and that we are free from all of the brokenness of this world and our minds are free and we can see him and know him and be found in him. And when we see him, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. Oh, my gosh. What a day. For all, it's going to take us all eternity to keep just the, the marveling going because of all of his greatness and kindness. Paul speaks here in this letter of a future declaration of Christ's work, a future declaration of the accomplishments in our salvation. Christ will show in the coming ages his immeasurable riches of his grace, all in kindness towards you and me. Please understand as we look at this and we're marveling at it, but understand that really one of the primary intents of our salvation, one of the primary intents and objects of our salvation is really hard to say this, but it's really not us as much as it is the glory of God. I mean, we're in it and we will never stop marveling over it, but make no mistake that our salvation is a glorification of Almighty God. I mean, look at what Paul tells us here. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, He will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Then he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which He's called you. Now watch this. And what are the riches of His? That's Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is wanting you to know that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. The Apostle Paul wants you to understand that we are, we are a trophy of His grace. And the focus of our salvation is Jesus being glorified, Jesus being vindicated, Jesus having an inheritance. And that's what you and I represent. We're a love gift from the Father to the Son. Our salvation is Christ's inheritance. I hope the view is clean for you this morning. I hope you're beginning to see things a little bigger than just, Jesus loves me, this I know, though that's profound and true. But rise up with me today into these ultimate intentions and see that there will be a moment that Christians from all tribes and nations over all of the centuries, there we will be gathered by the power of Christ, the power that he has to unite all things, and there we will raise our voices in anthem and praise to God, to the one who is seated upon the throne. God is going to give a grand and glorious demonstration in the age to come, and he will manifest his own glory to all to heavenly beings 
to the church and to all that he allows to see. We have to understand, and this is huge. The devil had a plan that was huge, that affected not just us, but was trying to affect God. And I put it up on the screen so that you could see it and follow along. you got to understand that the devil's plan to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden, it was much bigger than getting them just to sin and disobey by eating the fruit. It was bigger than just get them to eat the fruit. Just get Adam and Eve to sin. It was bigger. That, that, that plan of the devil's was bigger than just eating of the forbidden fruit. The end game for the devil was to detract from the glory of God. The devil wanted to taint and to mar. He wanted to obstruct and tarnish God's glory. The devil wanted to detract from the majesty, the greatness of our God. He was out to spoil God's world, God's work, and God's glory. That's what the devil was after. The devil wanted to do as much havoc as he could to tarnish God's great glory. That's what he was after. Not just getting Adam and Eve to sin. The devil was determined to get as many as he could to be deceived as possible. Even a third of the angels followed him in dishonoring God's glory and his work. The devil succeeded in the case of fallen angels. He succeeded in the case of Adam and Eve and their posterity. You know, the whole world even today, those who are outside of Christ, they look upon God with suspicion. They're questioning him. They're dishonoring him because the devil is a deceiver and the father of lies. God is dishonored and mocked every day. Did God really say, we got to get him out of the schools? We've got to get him out of the public square. And it's just a dishonoring of God continually all the time, blaspheming God. I'm so grateful for his perfect patience. God has brought about a great redemption and salvation, primarily to manifest and declare and to vindicate his own great glory. The devil had thought that he had destroyed God's world. He thought that he had destroyed God's plan and destroyed mankind's relationship to God. But God, but God, and Christ, he will put us on display to show forth the beauty of God's goodness. To the fallen angels, Christ will show his immeasurable grace and kindness so that he will be glorified. Every principality and every power in the heavenly realms, Christ in the coming age, will show his power and his salvation of mankind. This is what verse 7 says. Let's look at it again. So that in the coming age, say coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We know that God, according to the scripture, is going to bring about such a great display for his own glory. But how? But how? I'm glad you asked. 
Because Paul doesn't leave us wondering. He takes us along in this 40,000-foot view. He takes us along in God's ultimate plan and intentions. And then we read in Ephesians chapter 3 as it's unfolding these glorious, glorious truths. And we'll begin in verse 8. This is Paul speaking. Now look, Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is he saying? He is saying this, that through the church, say through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God is using the church now, and he is using his redeemed blood-bought people in the future to give a demonstration, to give an exhibition to the principalities and powers in heavenly places of his own eternal wise plan of salvation in bringing about the restoration of all things, in bringing about the uniting of all things in Christ. This is how we should see ourselves. <laughs> Steve, God's redemption on your life is a declaration to the principalities and powers that God is more powerful than they. Jeff, the principalities and powers in heavenly places, they see the redemption and the union that you enjoy with Jesus Christ, and they marvel at God's work and His plan. And they are marveling at this manifold wisdom of God. That's what it says, right? That through the church, the manifold, through Jeff Crooks, the manifold wisdom of God would be revealed to authorities and principalities. Manifold wisdom, what is that? Multifaceted wisdom, multicolored. It's like the facets of a diamond when you turn it. It's just manifold in beauty. The beauty of Christ is so magnificent. He uses trophies of his grace. He says, I'll have her, I'll have him, I'll have that family. They're going to be worshipers of me. They're going to sing the anthem of my praise. And all of that is being revealed to rulers, authorities, and heavenly places. He is showing you off. He is showing you off. See, the devil thought he won. He thought through the deception of Adam and Eve and the fallen angels that he can taint and mar and destroy God's creation. He thought he could really screw it up and bring dishonor to God. But God has a plan. And God is powerful. And his manifold wisdom is greater than the devil's on their best day. And he is bringing about in his church an exhibition. He is, you know, have you ever been to an art show before? 
And you know, you go there and then there's the paintings and then they put the painting up on the easel and then the artist, you know, he's, he's kind of moving it around. Let's turn it this way. I like the way the light shines on it. it you know, and then they get it just right and they put the final touches on it and it's all framed and pretty. Well, why do they do that? They do that so it would be seen in its best. They want, it, they, they want that, that, that piece of art to, to have its best view, its, its, its best beauty. Well, what do you think Sunday mornings are for? What do you think the assembly of the righteous is about? God is bringing his church together on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day in which we come together to have the final touches of God put upon our life. Where we come together to have the brush of the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and to teach us and instruct us. So that as we sing the anthems in the praise of God, our hearts rise up and all the crusty garbage and the crap that wants to stick to us from the week, it falls off because it's softened by the beauty of Christ, the word of Christ, the glory of God. And our hearts rise in an anthem to God. And all of a sudden, we become more beautiful in the assembly of the righteous. Why? Because God is saying, through the church, my manifold wisdom will be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. They're going to see that I had a plan and it won't be thwarted. And you and I, oh gosh. I, we didn't know we were that important, did we? But we are. Because the blood of Jesus is that important. Because his redemption matters that much. So I say to you, you know, you look for, okay, give me three points. How do I live? Just live in thanksgiving for what God has done for you. It's Thanksgiving week. Just live in gratitude for all that God has accomplished in your life. Live in the satisfaction of knowing that Jesus has been vindicated, that he is seated at the Father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power, and that he made room on that throne for you and I to be seated with him. Live in the good of that realization. Live in the 40,000-foot view that God's ultimate intentions is on display every day. His ultimate intentions is to unite all things in Christ. Things broken because of sin and man's rebellion. All of that, all of that will be made right and put right because Jesus, him alone, has the power to reconcile it all to himself. To Jesus be praise and honor and glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Man, I'm grateful for this truth. I'm grateful for this truth. All right. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. It's just beautiful, isn't it? When you just see what God is accomplishing and doing. So you watch the news. Don't be afraid. Bad news comes. Be in peace. We have a sovereign who loves us.